Now, from the Milken Institute, a special podcast on the pivotal role cancer research is playing in the search for COVID-19 solutions. A video version of this conversation, which includes slides, is available at milkeninstitute.org. And now, your host, Mike Milken, joined by Faster Cures Executive Director Esther Krofa and Prostate Cancer Foundation President and CEO Jonathan Simons. Thank you for joining us today. This is our 50th podcast, and it's quite different from the others. We will have, besides myself, eight others joining us today. And we have a theme today, and this is the relationship of people that have worked in cancer research over the years, some which we've had relationships for numerous decades, and how that relates to the COVID-19 crisis. We are going to focus particularly on one potential therapy that relates to work done by the Prostate Cancer Foundation over the decades, and another example of a biotech company that has interacted with Faster Cures. That is our goal today as we begin the 50th broadcast on dealing with how we're going to accelerate the solution for this COVID-19 crisis. There's a few things we want to remember at the beginning. As we focused on the previous 49, it was to give everyone an opportunity to listen in and be part of a conversation that I was having with a CEO, a Nobel Prize winner, people running government agencies, etc., and trying to look at this crisis from every angle, from the largest employers in the United States to leaders of the largest technology companies, to those that run hospital systems, to those responsible for the leadership of major pharmaceutical and biotech industries, from those in finance and what was happening to the economy, to former heads of the FDA, etc., And to try to give you a 360 degree look at what people were doing who were leaders that could bring an end to this crisis we have to remember that 50% of all economic growth that's occurred in the last 200 years can be traced to advances in public health and medical research. But one of our great advantages at this time is the enormous investment made around the world over the past decades in medical research, basic science, translational science, clinical science that you'll hear about today which brings us to an opportunity to produce a vaccine in less than 12 months, many of which have already gone into human beings, and also brings us an opportunity to look for antivirals, antibodies, and other things that have safely gone into humans. There are two leaders here that I reached out to three months ago, Esther, who's going to introduce herself to you in a few minutes, who runs Faster Cures, and then Dr. Jonathan Simons, who I challenged as the head of the Prostate Cancer Foundation to look through everything that had ever occurred in our cancer work that safely went into human beings over the decades. And today you will hear from eight leaders that have been focused on this for three months and promising opportunities that might lead the way to bring this crisis to the end. Esther, I'd like to start with you and for our viewers and our listeners around the world. CapCure was formed in 93 
as an outgrowth of my personal activities from the 70s and 80s to accelerate medical research. The CA stood for all forms of cancer, P, prostate cancer, and cure all life-threatening disease. More than 15 years ago, it was separated into two parts. One, Faster Cures, which Esther runs, and Prostate Cancer Foundation, which Jonathan Simons leads. So with that, Esther, just give us a brief overview of the mission of Faster Cures and what has happened over the past three months. Well, thank you so much, Mike. As you mentioned, Faster Cures was established to accelerate the development of medicines and treatments, quite focused on what do we need to do in the medical research continuum to ensure that medicines are getting as quickly to patients as possible and that nothing is standing in the way. So in our normal day-to-day job, that's what we work on. One of the areas that we have turned our attention to is tracking the development of treatments and vaccines. We are now tracking over 330 different efforts toward either a treatment and or a vaccine. In fact, as we look across all that is happening from a research perspective, a lot has already gone into clinical trials. Over 81 different candidates are in clinical trial. We expect to see many more over the coming months. And on the vaccine side, we already see 10 vaccine candidates that are in clinical trial. We've established eight pathways, Mike, into the response effort directing the scientific investigators that are coming to us. On average, we get about three to 10 new ideas every single day. And with these eight pathways, we've established direct collaboration with the VA, collaboration with NIH, with BARDA, with CEPI, with Gates, as I've mentioned, with large and small biopharmaceutical companies, and with those that have platforms that can establish and accelerate lab work in response to this virus. So Mike, there's a lot that's underway. We've directed a lot of these efforts toward the regulators or those partners that I've talked about and working in partnership with our centers, whether the Center for Public Health, the Center for Strategic Philanthropy, We've also been able to work directly with the philanthropic community and with the CDC on contact tracing efforts and others. And we'll continue those discussions as we go on. Thank you, Esther. And I also want to thank your family, your children, your husband for allowing me to call you morning, noon, and night on this. And I appreciate your entire team's input. And Jonathan, one of the things and I reflected on today is UCLA being represented, Fred Hutchinson represented, University of Michigan, UCSF. And when I think back to my first visits to those institutions in the early 1970s, focused on many of my family's serious health issues, our first funding in breast cancer, Laura, in 1972, and visits there. They are great representatives of the academic institutions and their ability to accelerate here. And Jonathan, I know you and I were in South Africa in Johannesburg at a medical conference, which we were putting on together. And on the way back, it just dawned on me that the world was about to change. And when you got back that Thursday, your world changed also. So thank you for joining us today. And I'll turn it over to you, Jonathan. 
Well, thanks, Mike. It's a privilege for my colleagues and I to be a part of this amazing series you've put on that has educated thousands and thousands, and particularly in real time. And the headline for our portion of this is that cancer research may not just have already provided incredibly important clues to understanding the SARS-CoV-2 virus and ways in which we could stop it and end deaths, but cancer researchers have swung into action and redeployed in under five weeks in the prostate community in an extraordinary way, which we'll get to at the end. And it gives me an enormous pleasure to introduce Professor Matthew Reddick. Dr. Reddick is a professor of oncology at UCLA, leader of their prostate cancer clinical trials program, but is also the chief of the David Geffen program at the West LAVA and is a leader in our Veterans Administration Prostate Cancer Precision Oncology Clinical Trials Network. And one of the messages today is how important the Veterans Administration Clinical Trials Program will be to accelerating testing new drugs and we think new vaccines for COVID-19. Our partnership with the Veterans Administration for Precision Oncology has put us in a position that the VA is the largest health system in America, actually with the best electronic database will allow us actually to accelerate the testing of new anti-COVID-19 medicines, vaccines, and actually speed FDA approvals for new anti-COVID-19 strategies. So we have this extraordinary group of basically cancer researchers and cancer fighters, and they all have something in common. They're contributing very actively to the fight against COVID-19. In Casablanca, Rick is sitting there and looks up and Ingrid Bergman comes into the cafe and he says, of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine. Well, of all the proteins of 80,000 in the human genome, COVID-19 walked into the Prostate Cancer Foundation Cafe. As we're going to discuss, the SARS-CoV-2 virus breaks in, infects a lung cell, multiplies. It basically breaks in through turning a door handle to get into the cell. And that door handle was identified by a group in Germany is called Temperis 2, T-M-P-R-S-S-2. And Temperis 2 is a gene that's involved centrally in prostate cancer. And this German group basically only six weeks ago ruled in that every death, all quarter of a million deaths so far on the planet from COVID-19 had to occur by the SARS virus getting into cells in the body through this prostate cancer protein. The Temperus 2 gene is made in men and women. It's in every cell in the body, we think. But men are twice or three times as likely right now to die of COVID-19 as women. And we believe that may be due to the fact that Temperus 2, the amount of basically door handles on the door is influenced by testosterone. So if you have a Y chromosome and you have normal testosterone in your body, you literally have more temperus too on the surface of some cells. It's a really important question that needs to continually be tested. But the opposite is also true. If you lower testosterone with drugs like Lupron, we know you lower the amount of temperus too. But both men and women who get infected and both men and women who succumb to COVID-19, the virus got into the cell through a keyhole called ACE2, basically putting a key into a lock and turning the door handle of the Temperus 2 protein. So Temperus 2 is absolutely central to understanding how this virus kills 
human beings. And there are 958 research papers today in prostate cancer on Temperus II since 1999 when Professor Nelson made the first research report. We have an extraordinary FBI dossier, so to speak, on the Temperus II protein that allows us to have many really interesting ideas about how you could stop the virus from getting in in the first place if you made new kinds of medicine or redeployed existing medicines that reduce the amount of Temperus II in your lung and your respiratory tract. You might, with other philanthropists, supported in 1999 Lee Hood and a very young professor, Peter Nelson, to go out and look at every gene that might be overexpressed or abnormal in prostate cancer. So I was going to ask Pete Nelson, who's here with us, who discovered Temperus II in prostate cancer, to tell us a little bit about the biology of Temperus II. And then we'll evolve the story to how you might use FDA-approved drugs for prostate cancer to slow down or stop the spread of the virus. And then we'll move on to how we could, in real time, make even better Temperus II drugs and bring forward very quickly out of the cancer research community a whole new class of anti-COVID-19 medicines in record time. So with that, Pete, would you talk a little bit about Temperus II? Thank you, Jonathan. Pete? Thank you, Jonathan, and thank you, Mike. It's really a pleasure to be here. I'll get into the Tempers too, but I thought it's useful to just display a little bit of the breadth of work at a typical cancer center that is rapidly repivoted to understanding and studying COVID. And we're not unique by any means at Fred Hutch and the University of Washington. I think you've seen a major pivot in cancer centers across the U.S. and researchers. So I would just say The cancer research community has a tremendous background in understanding the immune system, which has clear relevance for COVID. And a lot of this work comes out of pre-existing cancer research, where we know a number of drugs or molecules already approved or in pretty far advanced testing could now be redeployed for COVID testing. The example I'll give you around Tempris 2 really tells you how disparate areas of science really can kind of converge. So in oncology, We've often used prior work in developmental biology and genetics, physics, et cetera. But in this case, we're seeing prior and ongoing research in cancer that has an impact on COVID. So as Jonathan mentioned, this life cycle of the current COVID virus depends really on two proteins that are produced or expressed in the lung. One of these is Tempris 2 and the other is ACE2. So we were quite interested many years ago in Tempris 2. So it's well known that prostate cancer is highly dependent on testosterone or androgens. So from work supported by the Prostate Cancer Foundation now decades ago, we and others were trying to identify the genes that were turned on or turned off by testosterone in the prostate that could drive prostate cancer growth. So during these studies, we identified this gene called Tempris 2 as being highly produced in the prostate gland and was turned on by testosterone. So we continued that work and we actually identified an inhibitor, a drug that would block the Tempris 2 activity. A few years later, after we published this work, we were contacted by a group in Germany who had a clue that Tempris 2 may be important in influenza transmission. So the important key here is that the transmission or the infectivity of influenza is actually quite similar to now what we see with COVID infection. So we had made a mouse 
where Tempris 2 was completely deleted by genetic engineering. And we sent these mice to the group in Germany, and they proved that mice that were deficient in Tempris 2 were not infectable by influenza. They also showed this was very important a few years later for the SARS virus that at the time was of great concern for another pandemic. So fast forward just to this last year, as Jonathan mentioned, this same group now demonstrated that Tempris 2 and the ACE2 protein were both very important for the COVID, the current COVID-19 pathogenesis, which then opened up opportunities to try to target or block Tempris 2 activity to see if you could either prevent or at least attenuate the virus. I think it gives you a nice example of how more of a serendipity of two fields really coming together and also importantly understanding that many of these viruses, influenza, which we shouldn't lose track of, is also a major, major health issue in the U.S. and worldwide, that many of these viruses hijack or use very similar mechanisms. So the things that we may develop for COVID could also have very important ramifications for other viral diseases such as influenza. So a real key question, which I think Dr. Reddick and others will get into, we demonstrated that Tempris 2 was regulated, turned on in this case by testosterone in the prostate. And a real open question is whether Tempris 2 is also regulated by testosterone in the lung, which could explain possibly some of the male-female disparities both in infection rate as well as the disease severity. Our colleague Andrea Alamanti in Italy, in the midst of the Veneto area catastrophe, was in the Mike Milken way collecting all this big data on patient outcomes when they were off shift. Dr. Alamanti was aware of all the tempers to research and asked the following question. Well, if testosterone in a man will make more temperance too, what about prostate cancer patients where they've been given Lupron to slow down and stop their cancer by lowering their testosterone to exceptionally low levels? On May the 7th, the world got rocked again in cancer research that if you gave all cancer patients do worse with COVID. In Northern Italy, still, Actually, more women than men were infected, but far more men than women died of COVID-19 pneumonia and death. But if you were on anti to therapy, which is on Lupron, on hormone therapy that takes the testosterone in a man down to an exceptionally low level, you were one-fifth as many men matched for everything else died of COVID-19. And Andre and his team's hypothesis is that if you're on medicines that lower your testosterone low enough, your temperus too in your lungs has been reduced to the point that the virus can't spread as well or take off. Matt, do you want to talk a little bit about all of the breakneck speed taking two decades of science straight into the clinics in America? Matt represents the first clinical trial in the world, to our knowledge, to ask a randomized controlled trial about targeting tempers too. Jonathan and Matt, as we transition to you, I just want to mention one element that might be useful for philanthropists and others around the world. And it was more than 20 years ago, Matt, that we had come to UCLA and I had asked Jerry Levy find us the 10 most promising scientists, investigators, creative individuals in bioscience. 
at UCLA to address our board meeting for, at that time, cap care. We didn't care if they had worked in prostate cancer, but we wanted new and fresh ideas. And in that group was yourself, Ari Beldegren, Owen Witte, Charles Sawyers, and it changed the world of cancer research and changed the world of prostate cancer research. So Matt, to you. Thanks so much, uh, Mike and uh, Jonathan, for inviting me to speak to this really critical and important discussion. As a cancer researcher, and specifically prostate cancer researcher, I knew about Dr. Nelson's and actually Dr. Chenayan's work, you'll hear from Dr. Chenayan in a little bit, about the role of Tempris II in prostate cancer. So I do work in the lab as well as in the clinic and have research programs in both environments. So when I heard that the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the virus that causes COVID-19, needs this Tempris 2 protein to get into lung cells, that struck me as an opportunity. So you've already heard that Tempris 2 is required for the virus to enter the lung cell. If viruses don't get into cells, they die. The virus is a parasite, so it needs to get into the cells in the first place to harm the host. Tempus 2 is the gatekeeper. And we hypothesized that if we can shut down Tempus 2, then we can shut down the infectivity of the virus. It's really that simple. And it wasn't a huge leap to come to that hypothesis, given all the prior work that Dr. Nelson, Dr. Chenayan, and others had done in the realm of Tempus 2 in prostate cancer. So the key question that I think still remains is whether or not in lung tissue, Tempus 2 is regulated by androgens, the male hormone environment. There's a lot of correlative evidence that that is the case. And that was enough for me to hypothesize that we ought to target Tempus 2 by targeting the male hormone environment. And we designed a clinical trial to that effect. And this clinical trial is taking sick COVID-19 patients who are hospitalized. So their severity of illness is sufficient that they require hospitalization. And asking the question, if we give them a drug that is well known to the prostate cancer world that temporarily suppresses the male hormones, can we reduce the severity of the disease? Can we reduce the mortality? Can we decrease the hospitalization duration of patients who are suffering from COVID-19? So that study is underway. And that study would not have been possible without the Prostate Cancer Foundation and its collaboration with the VA. So you heard about the serendipity between prostate cancer research and COVID-19 through the Tempus 2. There's another serendipity, and that relates to the PCF-funded prostate cancer network within the VA. So it turns out that these sites are actually sites where there's a high burden of COVID-19. Los Angeles, Seattle, Brooklyn, Manhattan, the Bronx, etc. So the infrastructure to conduct the clinical trial was already in place. We were fortunate. It was just pure luck that we had this opportunity to repurpose not only a drug for prostate cancer, but also the clinical trials infrastructure that was supported by the Prostate Cancer Foundation through the VA. So this has enabled us to accelerate the development and execution of the clinical trial, which would not have been possible without these fortunate coincidences in terms of the science and the infrastructure to execute clinical trials. 
And actually, Matthew accomplished this as the national leader in under three weeks. It's the fastest science to medicine to man clinical trial, maybe in, well, certainly in the VA's history, but I would challenge it probably in American healthcare. Thank you, Jonathan. So designing and getting a study approved at multiple sites usually takes on the order of 10 to 12 months at a minimum. Our ability to get this study designed and approved for clinical application in just a matter of weeks represents the culmination of the collaboration between PCF and the VA. So this is a rigorous clinical trial where patients are randomly assigned to temporary hormone suppression with a drug called Degarelix. It goes by the brand name Firmagon, and it rapidly suppresses male hormone levels. So male hormone levels are reduced by about 90% within 24 hours. And patients are randomly assigned to getting that drug or a placebo, and the patients are randomized in a two-to-one fashion in favor of the active drug. We're planning on enrolling 200 patients. The goal is to enroll all 200 patients within 90 days, and we would need about another 30 days beyond that for the follow-up and some additional data analysis. We are doing an interim analysis, which means that midway through the study, we're going to see if there's such a benefit that we need to stop the study, unblind it, and give the real drug to the placebo patients. So this hopefully will be done very rapidly, and the VA has been very nimble, actually, in its ability to not only get the study open, but potentially include additional VA sites as needed, depending upon how quickly patients are accrued to the study. We're going to convene, as soon as the data is out there, we're going to convene one of the largest Zoom calls of experts in infectious disease, as well as in temperance to biology and drug development. Because the trial is designed fundamentally exactly like remdesivir from the standpoint that if the study is promising that lives are saved, that significant patient benefit is observed, we could immediately try to scale throughout American healthcare and around the world because every pharmacy in a hospital has Degarelex basically in the world. And there are other ideas about how to further target the androgen receptor or target testosterone. In HIV research, we got glimmers. Our current HIV medicines aren't the ones that first showed promise, but our current HIV medicines for patients that are not going to die of HIV include protease inhibitors. They're basically a class of medicines against exactly the kind of target that Temperus 2 is. So it's game on for anti-Temperus 2 antivirals until we can completely exclude the possibility that there's patient benefit. Matt, what I heard is there's a potential, if this trial is showing very strong results, that we might know in 45 days, as soon as a short period of time here, based on what you've told us, or a month and a half, which would bring us to the end of June. So June of 2020. And so we look forward to how we could accelerate, help accrue patients faster, To my knowledge, you have more than 30 or 40,000 patients in the VA system that we're interacting with who've had prostate cancer as we search for those that have COVID-19. And I think as we step back, Jonathan, and look at what occurred with our colleague in Italy, here we're talking about in 80% of the cases, 80% of substantially less burden, what occurred in their development of the disease 
in a reasonably large sample. So it gives us a great deal of hope yes. uh, on your work here, Matt. Thank you. Jonathan, back to you. Rule, I thought I'd ask you, since you're leading one of the most important efforts in the world, I think, against Tempers 2 right now, what's your lab up to? And what are you guys thinking about at the University of Michigan based on the last six weeks of all this Tempers 2 science? Thank you, Jonathan, as well as Mike, for inviting me to this teleconference. As you had alluded to, my lab has begun studying COVID-19 primarily because SARS-CoV-2 utilizes the two proteins that were mentioned earlier, ACE2 and PMPRSS2, and that in animal models as well as in in vitro studies, these have been shown to be clearly involved in SARS-CoV-2 infection and uh, replication. And as you had mentioned, it's certainly very intriguing and somewhat serendipitous that the gene TMPRSS2 is part of the gene fusions that we discovered through Prostate Cancer Foundation support, where TMPRSS2 is fused upstream of a cancer driving gene called ERG and is found in upwards of 50 to 60% of prostate cancer. So what we have been doing at the University of Michigan is that we've been looking very carefully at both animal models as well as patient samples as to what cells actually express TMPRSS2 in the lung as well as what cells in the lung express androgen receptor and are they expressed together to basically allow for the hypothesis that androgen receptor could control TMPRSS2 in lungs. And we're using what I would call microscopic methods or in situ analyses, as well as single cell sequencing to really look at individual rare populations of cells to see if these two genes, androgen receptor and TMPRSS2, are expressed in the same cells to support the hypothesis that TMPRSS2 could be regulated by testosterone in lungs. So I think that's where we've been primarily focused on. And like Dr. Reddig and others, we are exploring ways that we can begin to employ these therapies in a clinical trial, these various different anti-androgen therapies, such as the next generation anti-androgens, such as enzalutamide, apalutamide, and darolutamide in the context of COVID-19 disease, because there's a host of potential anti-androgens that have been developed in treating various diseases of the prostate, including prostate cancer, that could potentially be repositioned in the context of COVID-19 disease. The last thing that I'd like to mention, that in addition to the fact that TMPRSS2, that androgen receptor could be controlled by TMPRSS2 in the lung cells, the other important aspect to mention, and I think this was alluded to earlier, is that testosterone or androgens have a major impact on the immune system in that generally androgens are generally immunosuppressive or they suppress the immune system. So it'll be really interesting to see what anti-androgens do in terms of the immune system in the context of the cytokine storm that's seen with COVID-19. Would it actually suppress those effects or potentially further amplify those effects? So I think that's another unclear question that we need to explore. Not only the fact that whether TMPRSS2 indeed is testosterone regulated in lungs, but what are the impacts of testosterone and androgen on the immune system? And that's certainly been some of the molecular basis of the differences between males and females in terms of testosterone's effects on the immune system. As you've probably heard, the state of Michigan has been hit pretty hard with COVID-19. So our our cancer-related research labs are completely shut down. But we've 
been able to obtain permission to work on COVID-19 related research. So we have about, I would say, 5 to 10% of the lab really focused on exploring the ideas around how is TMPRSS2 regulated in lung cells. So I would say about five to eight individuals, really. Jonathan, as I listen to the discussion, it seems to me that the Rohr VA University of Michigan collaboration, we should start immediately or try to figure out how it could fit with Matt due to the number of people that have come down with this disease in that area. We've talked about the Bovatnik program in New York at the VA or the Barry program in New York at the VA. Also, it seems to me we ought to try to launch this immediately at the Astrakhan UTE program at the University of Pennsylvania with its VA. And so it just seems to me, as we've discussed the Klubeck effort in VA and Fred Hutch, that we ought to launch this at all of the centers. And also, as you know, Jonathan, as well as anyone in the world, the mutations found in prostate cancer that you've discussed are found in more than 70 other cancers, and the links between mutations in breast cancer and prostate cancer today we know are now strong. And now that we can figure out how we can accelerate multiple trials simultaneously with Laura, let's introduce Laura. Archimedes said, give me a lever, I can move the world. Laura Esserman is one of the leading physician scientists in breast cancer, and Laura and colleagues have created this fulcrum for a lever for faster ways to get more important information to develop new treatments for breast cancer, which we think are a critical part of the modeling up ahead for multiple COVID-19 clinical trials. And Laura, I thought you should share with the viewers a bit about what you're doing against COVID-19 using the paradigm of iSpy by starting really by explaining to citizens what iSpy is. As a surgeon, I like to really try and think about what is the most critical element. And when I think about why people are dying, we looked at the people with stage two and three breast cancer who are at very high risk to die early of their disease. You really thought, okay, this is where you really need to focus. And if you, all of drug development tends to start or stay in the metastatic setting. And unfortunately, we're not very good at curing people. We've done a reasonable job of prolonging lives by weeks and months, but we haven't really had a major impact on curing. And what we thought about doing was really trying to focus on these women at highest risk to die and move drug development to an earlier stage. So take women at high risk for early recurrence. Change the order of therapy so you have an early endpoint to figure out whether you're on the right track. You treat first. Not only do you find out whether or not the drug you're using is working in preventing metastatic disease, you actually are improving their surgical outcomes. But it also keeps you from treating everyone the same. In medicine, we tend to get guidelines and then treat everyone the same. But in fact, the aeropersonalized personalized medicine requires that you understand how each person responds. So the whole idea here was to try and figure out how do you shift drug development, move it earlier, get an early endpoint, and get that started. That's what we did with iSpy2. And so we have now 20 sites, and we have a Bayesian adaptive platform design where we can test multiple agents at the same time. You learn as you go, this idea of double blinding and then looking at some point down the road. You want to be fast and efficient. Learn as fast as something is working, you learn early. If it's not working, you drop it. 
our whole model is collaborative. We started it with the FDA, Anna Barker, Janet Woodcock, our advocates with the pharma community, clinicians and researchers. And we have this, the Quantum Leap Healthcare Collaborative, which is our sponsor, is our not-for-profit kind of honest, trusted broker and, and manages the trial, bringing in Silicon Valley management science to the table. The COVID-19 pandemic is a crisis primarily because the pulmonary toxicity causes this high associated mortality. And we not only have to solve this problem for SARS-CoV-2, but for other future viruses and pandemics. And this virus could mutate and we'll need to have something right there. And I do not think that the economy is going to recover until we solve this problem because people aren't going to feel safe going out. So we have to prioritize finding high impact treatments, to reduce mortality and time on ventilators independent of these vaccine efforts. And it turns out that everything that we're doing is easily translated into this field. But instead of being on cancer time, we're on COVID time, which I think is Mike Milliken time. So it's seven years crunched into five months. I think this idea of taking a pragmatic, real-world, evidence-based, adaptive platform trial and a learning system so you can find agents with a big impact, speed time to recovery and drop mortality, and harness that infrastructure the human and intellectual capital that we built over the last decade. So the whole idea of the trial is that you come into a critical care, now the ICU is no longer an ICU. Everyone can get on the trial and you'll be assigned to one of up to four drugs at a time, but you can have this rolling list of agents, agents that come from ideas about Tempris 2. There are some amazing drugs out there that are being repurposed. We're partnering with the COVID R&D consortium it is amazing how the industry has come together to save lives and their livelihoods, to say, here are the immune modulating agents or the antivirals that are coming up, and we're going to make them available, and we're going to find a way to get them forward. In my 10 years, I've never seen this amount of collaboration. It's really extraordinary. We can put these many drugs in. We're looking at time to recover. We're not looking for little bits of change, so we don't have to double blind. There's a lot of things that you don't have to do you're looking for a big impact. And so our modeling and a lot of, in a Bayesian adaptive design, one of the key things to do is to model and do simulations. And our simulations show that in about, even with four agents at a time, with 50 people a week, you would probably see in about six weeks whether or not a drug is working. And the chance of having it be a graduate is very high and making a mistake and dropping something that's not working is good. But this way, you're not looking for little things. You want to find those big things that really matter. And the only other thing that I would say is that we put this trial together start to finish in four weeks. And we've just submitted it to the FDA, did it around one o'clock last night. And working together, 15 to 20 sites can probably test 10 agents in four months. A lot of this, of course, depends on the pace of the virus. But if we could find three and four agents that dramatically reduce the time to recovery and death, it would make a huge difference. And I think one of the last most important things is if something is working, we can leave it in the trial, validate it. And if that gives you that same signal, you can move it to the backbone. So you can automatically build in this idea of building on your engine and it's going to be combinations that work here. The last thing I think everyone needs to think about is there are many, many exciting things that could work, but you've got to focus on those drugs where there's sufficient capacity to scale so you can rapidly move to treating worldwide, or at least across the nation and across the world. That's really what's gonna solve this problem for us, so. 
Thank you, Laura, and thank you for your enthusiasm. <laughs> well, there's no shortage of that. I think that, Jonathan, this has outlined a completely new way of doing trials on multiple agents simultaneously and getting decisions. And I think one of the things we're going to learn from this, no different whether it was NASA or other challenges, is that the way medical research is done in the future is going to change. Time is yep. going to be suppressed. And we're going to find new ways to get answers quicker. I'd like to now transition to Esther. Esther, as you pointed out, there's more than 300 today antibodies, antivirals, immunology agents, vaccines, and other approaches that you are monitoring and updating on a daily basis and appearing on milkaninstitute.org. One of the areas that bridges from cancer that I challenged both you and Jonathan on was this idea that your immune system is smarter than you. And this was an element that Nobel Prize winner Jim Allison put forth when I first met him more than 25 years ago. And so what happened in cancer? Was it turned off? Was the cancer disguised? Was it weakened? And how can we deal with that immune system? And much of the successes in cancer in the past few decades have had to deal with what is now called the cytokine storm, the over-energizing of the immune system. And so as you and your extensive team, Esther, are looking at these things daily, could you now bring one of them to the forefront as a representation of when they got approval two business days later, they were interacting with us? Yeah, that's right, Mike. We're almost approaching 80,000 deaths in the U.S. And the question that you've raised that we raise on a daily basis is what is safe and can go into humans as soon and rapidly as possible? And so when we're getting dozens of ideas a week around compounds that are proven to be safe, that have patient benefit, that can lower the mortality, the question we ask is, well, what's standing in the way? What do we need to do? How can we accelerate those efforts into clinic and into patients directly? One of those opportunities, organizations came to us, as you mentioned, by this company in North Carolina, Biomark, that had previously studied a compound for COPD, for ARDS, non-small cell lung cancer, the received data, reached out to us over the course of a weekend and two business days, we had a phone call with that company to learn more about their efforts. And we spent quite a bit of time with them to learn about what do we need to do if this is safe and can potentially help patients to quickly accelerate their efforts. So Ken, what, why don't we start with you? Thank you very much, Esther, and thank everybody for inviting us to this podcast. We actually, as you pointed out, have developed a drug originally developed to address cancer which now could be used to treat COVID-19 patients. We discovered about seven or eight years ago, related to cancer, a potential target in cancer cells called Mark's protein, M-A-R-C-K-S, which is involved in cancer progression and metastasis. We developed a drug to block its function in, in cancer. It's an inhaled drug. And we actually completed a clinical trial in lung cancer and showed that it was effective in blocking cancer progression and metastasis. At the same time that these studies were going on, we also noticed that when we were doing studies with animal models in my laboratory, 
that this drug also blocked in the lung inflammation and the cytokine storm that occurred in another disease entity that's called acute respiratory distress syndrome, it's abbreviated ARDS, and that is a deadly disease. It's fatal in probably close to half of the patients that get it in the United States. We thought that this drug, since it blocked the inflammation and the cytokine storm, which characterize ARDS, we thought it would be useful possibly in that disease. We did an FDA-approved clinical trial in human patients with ARDS that was successful. It decreased deaths by over 40% in our population, and it was shown to be totally safe in this patient population. We finished this trial in March, ARDS. This is the same time that the COVID pandemic came along. And it turns out that this disease, ARDS, is what is responsible for a mortality for, for the deaths in most of the COVID-19 patients. They progress from viral pneumonia to ARDS, and that is what they die from. They have to be put on a ventilator, and I think you've seen the results of treating COVID-19 patients with intubation with a ventilator, and it's not very efficient. Now, COVID-19 patients are being treated with high-flow oxygen, nasal oxygen, and there's a period of time when they're treated with the high-flow oxygen where they could be possibly kept off the ventilator. I'm not sure what the exact percentage of patients that progress to a ventilator are, but I think it's still fairly high, even with the high-flow oxygen. So if we could treat those patients at that time with this drug, which we know prevents the inflammation and the cytokine storm, this could be a way of keeping these patients off a ventilator and saving countless lives in the process. We're very excited about using our drug to treat COVID-19 patients. And I'm going to pass the baton here to Dr. Rajan Ahuja, who's the chairman of the board. And I think he can tell you more about these clinical trials, both the one we just completed, an ARDS, and potential new ones for COVID-19. Thanks very much, Ken. And of course, thanks, Mike, for letting Biomark join this podcast. I would like to say that, yeah, I do remember, Esther, that phone call. It was my first call, if you will, right outside of the rest of my partners at Biomark was to you and your crew. I thought that, look, we have something very unique. When I started with the company seven, eight years ago, the company had the COPD data. It was very promising. It was phase two. It hit four primary endpoints, clinically significant. It was a big study. It was 170 patients. And it was at that time when Ken came and said, look, he just finished doing a lot of animal data with respect to lung cancer and also with respect to what's known as ARDS and an orphan indication. So we said, look, let's just pause real quick on the COPD. We know that the product works in man. I mean, we've proven that with these results, but let's shift and move forward with oncology and also with ARDS. After a few years of research, we didn't know that we would have such promising results in ARDS right in the middle of the world's pandemic. And as we all know, these COVID-19 patients are dying from ARDS. We strategically shifted and now we're trying to gear up to move forward on that. Laura's campaign would be an excellent next step. What we need to do as a company is to drive this forward. We're reducing mortality in ARDS by over 40%. I mean, we've demonstrated that. We have over 300 patients dosed with our product with minimal to no side effects. So we're a very safe compound to be treated in this, in this disease state. We've had numerous calls from several pharma companies and in having discussions with them, when you wrap up the call, it's always wishing each other luck. 
it's a very competitive environment. It's a very competitive industry, but the whole world is working together to solve this. And it's a really dramatic shift in the industry from such a competitive environment to cheering each other on. I mean, we really want somebody to uh, help solve this and we look forward to being part of that. Raj, thank you. And I want to thank everyone for joining us today. The theme of collaboration was there when CapCure was formed at the very beginning. And once again, CapCure, C-A-P standing for all cancers and prostate cancer, Cure standing for all life-threatening diseases. And our representatives today from what is Prostate Cancer Foundation, which took over the CAP, and Cure, which took over Faster Cures, were built on this very concept of collaboration. Whether it was the very first cancer summit in the mid-1990s, whether it was the march with more than a 1,000 organizations participating, which ultimately led to President Clinton signing into law the doubling of the NIH budget and the tripling of the national cancer budget. Whether it was the center's activities in Lake Tahoe at our medical research retreats, or whether it was the efforts that brought the National Center for Advancing Translational Science to the forefront with the Innovation Summit in Lake Tahoe so many years ago, and lastly, whether it was the celebration of science, bringing 1,200 people together in Washington, D.C. to reaffirm the United States' commitment to bioscience. All of these are underlined with the concept of collaboration. Lastly, there's a very famous phrase. I used it myself starting in the 1970s, and that was, the harder I work, the luckier I get the better prepared I am, the more successful I am. And judging by this enormous collaboration, as seen just recently with Gilead, offering companies the right to make their product, which has just been approved by the FDA, without royalties. Companies opening their patents, working together, and not only doing that, but working together and providing insight and data each bioscience company all over the world, as we've interacted with more than 100 of them, each rooting for each other to find a solution to the coronavirus. It is this hard work and teamwork that gives us great hope that we'll see a solution to this virus, whether it's an antiviral, whether it's immunology, whether it's antibodies, or whether it's a vaccine in the near future. Thank you all again for joining us today. Find more episodes on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or milkeninstitute.org slash podcast, where you'll also find the latest 